Hello everyone, this is Terry Mitchell from the Voice on Fire interview series and I'm going to take a few moments to go through a traditional acknowledgement. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the people that are the traditional owners uh, and the land that I work on and that I live on. And to pay my respects to the elders, the past, the present and the emerging and from my ancestors to yours, I say sorry. And I get quite emotional when I do that because I really wear that sense that Australia is hurting in a lot of ways, but it's the traditional people and their ancestors who are really in a situation where they need to be heard. And today's Voice on Fire is quite special because I get to the chance to speak with Carly Stanley, who uh, is somebody that's got a really important message to share. And Carly's from New South Wales. And as the CEO and founder of Deadly Connections, I wanted to hear directly from Carly, her message and, and what her amazing mission is and what, what she does, which I think is really quite just... It's quite, not only is it an essential service, but it's one that I think a lot of people probably don't really understand what really goes on. And just from my, my own, um, you can hear I'm mumbling. It's, I, I'm so choked up with emotion on this because it really matters to me that, that this story is heard from the people who really know what's going on. So without me going on too much more, I want to introduce Carly. Thank you for joining me, Carly. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with me today. Thank you for Thank having me. So as I mentioned, you're the CEO and founder of Deadly Connections. And I'd like to let people know a little bit more what it is you do. These are the three questions I usually ask. What is it you do? Why do you do it? And who do you do it for? So let's sort of start off with that. Yes, yeah, so, um, so we are Deadly Connections Community and Justice Services and we created our, my husband and I created our organisation um, in direct community response to the over-representation of Aboriginal, our First Nations people in both the child protection and justice systems. So we're based in New South Wales and we work with Aboriginal people, families and communities, but particularly those impacted by the child protection and justice systems. Uh, we, we aim to uh, positively disrupt intergenerational disadvantage, grief, loss and trauma uh, by providing holistic, culturally responsive um, interventions and services to First Nations people and communities, uh, again, particularly those impacted by the child protection and justice systems. So our vision is to break cycles of disadvantage, trauma, child protection and justice involvement so that our First Nations people can uh, transition from uh, thriving, uh, from surviving to thriving. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And you, look, the, the biggest challenge that I hear in all of that is you're up against the system and it's, you, you're not just there supporting your people, you're also trying to break stigma, you're trying to address um, misrepresentations and just a system that's essentially biased. Would you say that that's the case? Yeah, I mean, in our, we can only speak from our experience and in our experience, um, the system is inherently biased. It's uh, built on a foundation of, um, you know, uh, 
I guess a, a white person's world, a non-Aboriginal person's world. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, the foundation of the system doesn't take into account our cultural, social, uh, economic, spiritual, uh, mental and physical needs. Um, so it's, it's failing our people and it's failing them miserably. And we know that through, you know, statistics, but what we have to remember with statistics is every single statistic that is presented to us is, is a person It's someone's mum, it's someone's dad, it's someone's son, it's someone's daughter, it's someone's children. So, uh, you know, we, we don't, we know what the stats are. We don't try and talk about them that much, but we just want to make sure that people understand that this is, this is a human issue. It's not, it's not a political issue. It's, um, you know, if, if one of us wins, we all win. So we need to make sure that, that any, any support that we're providing people, um, well, particularly Aboriginal people, it, it targets the community because we can't just work at an individual level when we, we, we face so many um, shared challenges across different Aboriginal communities across Australia. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, it, we could all try and dance around the idea that, you know, talking about um, Indigenous people's um, misrepresentation in um, the, the justice system. And we can talk about, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, but at the heart of it is people that are of colour, people that are that have just, they're not getting the appropriate recognition for their culture, for their their needs are not being met. And, you know, that's, that's such a, um, for me, I, I know that I don't understand the issues because they're not affecting me. And I know that what I'm, when I thought about wanting to interview you specifically, because I know I've been following you on, on LinkedIn for quite some time, and some of the, the topics and the, the material that's coming through is showing me that people like myself who genuinely have a, a massive sense of compassion and, and want, to, want to be able to not necessarily help, I don't know the, how, how we can help, but I think that's the crux of it for someone like me is we don't know how to really appreciate what's happening and we want to help. People like me want to help. We want to do something. We want to make sure that we are on your side and showing that we support what you're trying to achieve. But the only, for me, there's, there's no real way unless we have these conversations and I, I wanted to have a conversation with somebody that is able to say, this is really what's happening. From a day-to-day -day basis, what are the sorts of things that you do? So when you've uh, decided to create this uh, amazing foundation or this business, what is, it, what is it you see yourself doing each day? What's the, the standard sort of approach with everything each day? So every day is different because of the type of support that we provide. Um, you know, we often intervene at times that are very critical for families. So we provide our grassroots programs. The two programs that we're providing at the moment are our Deadly Families Project, which uh, works with our First Nations mum and or dads with their own history of child protection uh, and or current involvement with um, the justice system. We know that their parenting skills have been disrupted. So we address, um, we work with them and we address child protection concerns to try and uh, reduce and minimise the risk of children being removed. Um, and, uh, you know, if the children have already been removed, then we look at trying to get them restored or, or keeping them connected to um, their family, their culture and their community. And then the other project that we have at the moment is our Street Smart project, which was on uh, the project the other night. Yeah, and that's an... 
intervention. Yeah, you seen that? Yeah, yep. Great, great. Um, so that, that's just a snippet of sort of what we do with that. But that's an early intervention and uh, prevention and diversion project. And we created that uh, project. It's a youth-based street program. So we don't work from uh, a youth centre. We are actually out on the streets engaging young people that, that could be falling through the cracks, that, that might be engaged with the youth service. But in the areas that we work, the youth services don't often open until a bit later in the afternoon, I think in Glebe at 6.30pm. So we just want to try and keep the, the young people engaged in pro-social activities until the youth centre opens and then we try and take them off there. The aim is to keep them off the street and to keep them out of trouble. Um, and they're the two programs that we've got going at the moment. But in addition to that, we often get phone calls from community members who have loved ones in custody or who are battling the child protection system who just don't know where to go at the moment. So we get lots of um, inquiries for support that we try. You know, we're not funded. We're completely under-resourced. We don't get any state government or local government funding at this stage. So we try to support them as much as we can with what we've got. Um, and the other thing that we do is we also advocate uh, for systemic change. So at the moment we're involved in a campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, at the moment we lock up kids as young as 10. We are advocating that that's raised uh, to 14 in line with international standards and that we focus more on uh, programs such as the Street Smart Project where we can divert young people away from the criminal justice system because we know sending them to prison doesn't work. We know sending them to prison makes them come out worse than what they went in. Um, and um, there, there are many other ways that you can get involved in. I know, you know, you were talking about how to get involved, Terry. And if you head over to our website, there are other, we've got a list of deadly ways to get involved. Um, and there's a whole range of options uh, of things that you can do to, to support our work. Fantastic. Honestly, I'm astounded by the amount that you achieve and you're not funded. I cannot believe that a service as vital as what you do doesn't receive any funding at all. So we get a small amount of funding from the Australian Drug Foundation, which has helped us sustain the Street Smart project. And the other way that we're able to provide um, services is through philanthropic funding. So that's um, generous donations from people who see the importance of our work. So um, the funding network was, was really instrumental in providing us some money to start our Deadly Families project. And more recently, um, Cages Foundation has also given us some money to continue that important work. Without that money, we wouldn't have one cent to do what we're doing. I'm astounded that there's no, no further support. You, your, your services are just absolutely critical. And like we don't have enough time today to talk about why the service you provide is so vital and how it even is needed in the first place and why it really why it shouldn't even need, be needed except for the fact that our... It, it, look, it's pretty obvious our government is not, not focused enough on areas where support would be essential to help break cycles, whether that be with Indigenous people, whether that be with domestic violence. It, there's just, it's almost like too little too late and I applaud you for what you're doing. I think what you're doing is, is not, not, just, not just essential because obviously wouldn't, in, in one sense, and I don't mean this in any way that dismisses the situation, but just to try and say it from where even how I see it, it really doesn't matter if you are an Indigenous child or if it doesn't matter what background you've come from, if you've come to the country and you're not part of what Australia's 
said to be about, it, it, there's just no fairness in the system for you. There's just nothing there to support you. And the support is essential because for, for Indigenous people particularly, I, I, I know you don't mention the statistics, but, you know, obviously for people that are going to watch this statistics, some of them are going to want to understand those statistics. We might have some links in the um, description for the video just to send them off to different locations if they want to find out a little bit more. I totally believe, yes, it is about people. It's about families. It's about, as you say, someone's son, someone's daughter, someone's child, someone's parent. We need to keep families together, but we also need to recognise people's culture and the significance of that to the Indigenous people. And I just think what you're doing is amazing. And the fact that there's no, no funding for it is... I, I'm flawed. I really did not know. Um, and I want to quickly flick to something that you mentioned. Um, I believe it was your husband that was on the project um, and he was being, um, uh, he was talking about um, the Indigenous um, projects that you've got going on. Um, do you want to just maybe share a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I've already spoken about the, the two projects that we've got happening at the moment, but I think one of the really key messages that, that we wanted to get across on the project was the, the amount of money that's currently being spent on our child protection and justice systems. Yes. So um, 2018 financial year, $10.2 billion was spent uh, in New South Wales alone on our justice system, which includes courts and police and, and everything else. But that's $10.2 billion. And, um, you know, our people, in terms of statistics, statistically speaking, are 24 times more likely to be imprisoned than non-Aboriginal people. Um, we know that, um, you know, our young people are more likely to come to the attention of police. If they come to the attention of the police, they're more likely to be arrested. If arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. If convicted, they're more likely to be sentenced to a term of imprisonment. So, you know, we know these things. The other thing is, you know, we we get referrals from government agencies, um, which demonstrates that there's a need for our service. There's nobody else in New South Wales doing what we're doing at the moment, so we're not here to duplicate anything. We're here to provide a culturally responsive service uh, where we can. So um, at every opportunity that we can, you know, with the resources that we're given. Um, so, you know, our service is vital. Like it's, it's so, it's so important, particularly for our communities because they feel comfortable working with us. Yeah. Oh, I would absolutely hundred percent. And for those who may not have seen the project and for any of the international uh, viewers of this particular video, um, there will be a link to the Facebook page where the, um, reference to the project, it's a TV program that like a, um, a news and current affair program in Australia. And uh, as mentioned, uh, Carly's husband was uh, speaking on that program about uh, some of the projects that, um, that they're working on through Deadly Connections. Um, what I'd like to do is place that link into the, the description for this YouTube video so that you can actually go and watch it for anybody that wants to, to get a bit more of an understanding of what's going on. Um, I'm really astounded, Carly. I'm like again. I feel like I could be picking my jaw up off the floor with all of this. You don't get government funding yet; they do government referrals to you, and I think that is just an absolute. That's a farce. That's in itself ridiculous. What I'd just like to perhaps take from from just this part of the conversation is, you mentioned that um, that when Keenan was on the program, uh, there was um, just sort of putting like the spotlight on, on what the services are about and what's happening with the, the funding. Um, what is it that you would like to see happen in terms of 
it, look, it's fantastic that you've got that current um, um, affairs program to to uh, place the, the, the whole of what you do in the spotlight. And, and obviously just this little part that I can play by giving you an option, opportunity to talk about it, what is it you'd really like to see happen so, you know, in terms of if we could if we could tap on the ears of, of say, Scott Morrison, for example, and that's Australia's Prime Minister, for those who may not know, um, what would you what would you really like to be able to say? Yeah, I think that um, we really need to be elevating and amplifying the voices of First Nations people and communities. We are the ones most affected by, um, you know, the challenges uh, at the moment. And and what people need to understand is is colonisation is ongoing. It's not a process that just stopped. Mm. People can't seem to understand the link between colonisation and trauma and the way that that impacts on First Nations people and communities. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, your saddest day where you just can't get out of bed and you've lost a family member and, you know, you've got a lot of significant personal stuff going on, that's what it's like for First Nations people almost every day with the challenges that we face. Um, so I think, you know, hearing about the solutions from communities, uh, hearing about the way that we know works, uh, what we often get is we get government developing projects that they think are amazing. They don't consult with Aboriginal people. or If they do, it's very tokenistic. Um, they don't embed or implement any of the recommendations. They go ahead with this project and then they say, and then it doesn't work because they haven't involved First Nations people. And then they say, oh, we throw all this money at First Nations people and we, you know, and, and the issues that they call them, we don't call them issues, we call them challenges because um, we, we don't talk about ourselves in a deficit. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're a very strong, resilient people, as I, I mentioned that on the project, mm -hmm. and we've got solutions, we just lack resources. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really about working with Aboriginal people and communities on what they see as the best way to do things, yeah. and it's almost guaranteed to work if, if you're involving them from, from, the, from the inception sort of yeah. phase of, of the development. Yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. And the idea that um, this, um, the lady that was speaking on the project as part of that um, program was mentioning that all the different Royal Commissions that have been held. And to me, I personally think the Royal Commissions of any kind are an absolute waste of money and time. I don't see value in any of them. But the, the fact that they're willing to invest money in those sorts of uh, investigations and um, the research. And as you say, at what point do they consult with you? At what point do they bring the people that are most affected in to have those conversations. That's right. And the thing is, Terry, they, you know, they do these uh, Royal Commissions and then they don't implement the recommendations. Yep. You know, so we've had the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, you know, the statistics are, 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 are worse than what they were back then. We've got the Royal Commission that they undertook in Northern Territory after the, after you've seen um, Dylan Voller, who's a very close friend of ours, strapped to the chair um who still struggles you know with with what happened to him back then and you know you've got uh the pathways uh pathways report that was done by the australian law reform commission the government hasn't even responded to that report yet where they've made really really key recommendations around both the child protection and the justice system the government's yet to respond to that report and that's two years old oh. That's just so typical, isn't it? It's just so typical. It's like there's no priority. Unless it's making money for the country, you know, at what point do they care? And that's the really tragic part of it. You know, people, I kind of 
as I was about to kind of go off on another tangent there, I immediately recall the whole Rio Tinto um, blasting of the, um, the lands. Yeah. That made me feel sick. And, you know, the idea that there was no, um, no one held accountable. There's no one yeah. held accountable. And to me, it's almost like there's, there's just no, if, if it involves the Indigenous people, it's like it's just in that too hard basket, let's not deal with it. And I find it's, it's to me, that makes me really quite angry on behalf of all of, you know, the, the current Indigenous people and their ancestors because if, if we don't take some degree of ownership of the participation that we've all had in some way, shape or form, in allowing this situation to ferment the way it has because we've just never we've we're never giving it enough constant attention it's like okay oh it's a bit of noise over here now let's just well that's we'll, a squeaky wheel we'll oil it now and it'll go away like well no that's not what happens these people are like I, I want to raise the one thing i keep wanting to come back to and my mind goes off on a thousand tangents but the one thing i really want to come back to for those who are not familiar with the Indigenous um, uh, heritage of Australia, excuse me, of Australia, I'd like just to have have you just put into a context the significance of the Indigenous people of Australia. You know, the oldest living culture. You know, share a little bit about what what it, that means to you. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, our connection is is to the land. Uh, we, you know, our our histories and our culture is passed down through through our sacred sites, you know, and through our our um, our own landmarks. You know, the Opera House isn't a place of significance for us because it's not. It's been man made. You know, we've got sites that predate. Oh, you know, there's discussions around 120, 150,000 years, maybe even more. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah, I can't even really put into words how important it is to us because that's the foundation of all that we know, you know, and our culture. And it's just, you know, people, I guess people think about, you know, when, when vandals break into to graveyards and, and decimate and... and you know, um, graffiti and, and people are outraged, you know, it's, it's, yep. it's, it's where people are laid to rest. It's, it's supposed to be a, a nice space. It's, it's, you know, a similar thing for us. It's sacred sites are, are, are the same for us, you know, burning down of a church. Mm. That's what it feels like for us. You know, yep. the church in Paris that got burnt down, they, they, they raised, I think $50 million or something within the first day of that church burning down. Yeah. We don't get the same respect for our sacred sites because it's not within the, I guess, the the um, the non-Aboriginal framework of what what a what a special place is supposed to look like or feel like. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and I think that's what's really tragic is we're not able, for some reason, we we just don't seem to make the um, the connection between what we see as significant and why that would be seen as significant. In a different context for someone else and yeah. for me it's it's really is it's about and, and something you mentioned earlier you know if we, if we were having a sad day and, and and you know we'd lost somebody and we didn't want to get out of bed that sort of feeling I actually wanted to say Carly I imagine that that would be then amplified by 10 for how you guys yeah. really feel what is 
what is happening because ultimately your culture is between as we acknowledge at the moment between 40 and 60,000 years strong and yet in the last 200 odd years our my ancestors have come along to this land and it's like we just don't care and I am not trying to downplay the significance of some of the good things that can come from the colonization but we have to acknowledge that there is going to be a massive emotional trauma and also a disconnection from what is your own, as you say, the cultural connection to land. And we need to be able to have these conversations and feel that we can acknowledge each other. And, and you know, I've, I've often heard that the people of the non-Indigenous um, uh, heritage are saying things, well, you know, that's history, just get over it, move on. And it's, when I hear that, I, I'm actually quite emotionally shocked that people would feel that that desensitised to the whole um, story because it means to me that there's maybe just not enough conversation happening about the significance of, of connection to land. And I, I got very emotional when I was doing the traditional acknowledgement because I actually... I find there's just such an immense sense of love within the, the Indigenous people about their, their sense of who they are and their connection to their history and their storytelling. And I love hearing the fact that you call your people the mob because just to me that's like a big heartfelt hug of your people. That's what it feels like to me when I hear that. And it's like I feel like my people don't even know what that's like. And I think yeah. what we miss out on is because we don't come from it. We're from a very nuclear, individualised, um, it's all about me kind of culture. We, and that's historical. We've had that for, for centuries. Yeah. And here, here you are, your people are the people that are all about connection. And that yeah. word just means so much. And It does. It does. And, that, and that's why, you know, when we refer to our elders, we call them auntie and uncle. Like I had a... I was actually working the other day and my two-year-old and uh, came into the office and um, and I had a photo up on the computer, uh, our first sort of team photo with all of our staff members. And I asked my two-year-old, who is it? And he named every single person there as mum, dad, Keenan and I, and we had another three people in the photo, auntie, auntie and uncle, because that's, <laughs> that's, that's his worldview. Everybody is family. Yeah, that's adorable. No, that's that's how we operate, and that's how we've survived. We're, we're communal. We, you know, there's not an Aboriginal word for please or thank you because everything is 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 shared. Yeah, you know, yeah. you you give to me one day, I give to you the next time, and that's that's the way we operate. You know, there's there's not a person in our community that couldn't knock on our door for something to eat or somewhere to stay, and vice versa. You know, if we needed it. We'd yeah. be able to find somewhere to, to stay, you know. That's just the way we operate. Yeah. And I, I just think that's just, that, again, that, that really hits me in the heart because that's like, imagine if we were open to have these conversations on a regular basis so that there was always that understanding. If someone was able to ask someone who is of an Indigenous background, please explain to me so that I know, so I understand, and then to really listen and hear. Because just by opening up these channels of conversation, we get a chance to have a, a better understanding. Because if I don't understand or if I don't know, that really ultimately makes me ignorant, whether by choice or by, by pure situation. 
And ignorance is some of the, 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 well, it's one of the most toxic things we can have because if we're ignorant, we act, generally speaking, without consideration for someone else's way of life. I mean, if, if we can approve gay marriages, that's okay. We've, we've shifted in our transition of thinking from back in the 60s and 70s when um, being considered um, homosexual was a mental illness and they were putting people in um, psychiatric centres and they were going into prison and they were being bashed and all sorts of horrific things were happening to them just because of who they were. And it, in, in, in its own way, it translates in the same way because how if we look at legislations and the changes in the uh, white person policies that were in place by the government here, your people weren't even acknowledged. Then at one point you were considered to be the equivalent of flora and fauna at one point, which that I'm almost speechless when I see that because how can you look upon somebody who is different for whatever reason and cast aspersions on them or dismiss them as being insignificant? I don't understand that myself. I, I just, I can't function from that way of thinking. But for anyone that's watching this, this video, that's the sort of experiences the Indigenous people of Australia have had. They've not even been acknowledged by the government on so many levels throughout the time that colonisation took place. So it's really, really... And still now, current day, like this isn't, yeah, something that's happened in the past and I think that's where people get caught up, you know. It's something that happened before my time and, well, no, it's still happening. They're still removing children. They're still splitting families up. They're still um, criminalising trauma, criminalising poverty, you yeah. know. Um, it's still happening. It didn't happen a long time ago. And, and as unfortunate as, you know, the, I guess, the the issues that have started, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, um, we've seen over in the US what's going on. And, and, you know, people are so disconnected and they say, but Australia is not like that. But Australia is like that. Oh, yeah. You know, had 437 deaths in custody since the Royal Commission and not one person has been held responsible for that. Yep. So we are like that. And, you know, this, I think, you know, both my husband and I have been really, really inspired by the amount of people who are now taking an interest, you know, better late than never. Um, like you said, if, if you're ignorant before and you don't know, but, but now people know, people have an opportunity to learn more about what's going on um, it's not up to Aboriginal people to educate you all the time. It's, it's tiring. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's better for your growth that you understand what's going on and for your awareness, you know, because people just get online and I mean, I don't read comments, um, generally around, um, stories because there's always those negative people that'll just say, how about you don't commit crime? Yeah, exactly. Really, really, like, <laughs> if it was that easy, we wouldn't be in the position we are, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. Because we need a whole transformation of the justice system because it's yeah. just, you know, defunding and, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's crazy. And it's not going to get any better until the people who are not directly affected are as outraged as the people that are. And yep. stand up and say, we don't want this anymore. We don't want to spend our taxpayers' money on interventions that don't work. Prison doesn't work. We know that. Recidivism yep. rates tell us that. Absolutely. It doesn't work. Nobody comes out better. You know, and, and for me, you know, when I used to work for corrective services and I used to, 
um, train the officers in terms of Aboriginal uh, cultural competence. And I used to say to them, there's a very small percentage of people in prison who won't be in the community again. You know, Ivan Malat and, you know, yeah. Martin Bryan and, and the people that just, they will never see the light of day. But for the majority of people in prison, and I'm talking about both First Nations and non-Aboriginal people, they will be joining us at some point in the community again. Now, I know what type of a neighbour that I would like. Yeah. I would like a neighbour that feels supported, connected, um, can provide for themselves and their family without doing crime, um, has a safe place to stay, is connected with mental health support, is connected to, to healing opportunities where there might be might be trauma. We know, you know, we know the majority of, of women in prison are mothers. You know, what happens to the families when they go to jail? So I know what type of a neighbour that I want. I know what type of a neighbour that, that um, uh, most people want. But for the people that keep advocating lock people up, it's, it's concerning. Yep. I don't think that they actually know what happens in jail and what type of an environment that is in there and the way that people are forced to survive. Yep. through violence, yep. through antisocial behaviour, that's what happens in there. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, there is no doubt, no matter, you could have the conversation with anybody and I would challenge anyone to tell me that the prison system, justice system, is fair and equitable and works. Um, even the Attorney General, and I would like, I would love to have a conversation with him one day about why he thinks that the system currently is working well enough I'd love to quote him because I actually was listening to the quote that came through on the project uh, interview. Um, mm -hmm. And I just think that if that's the mindset that people that are in positions of power can take, they're clearly so disconnected from understanding what really happens. Um, and, you know, the prison system doesn't work. I've always known right from even as a young person, it was easy to understand that if someone was going into a prison system as a first-time offender, no matter the the simplicity of the crime, and I mean, this is not for people that have committed, say, murder and maliciously intended to commit that murder. This is for people that might have done breaking and entering, might have done something like maybe they got into a fight and they bashed somebody and, you know, something that was at least serious enough to maybe warrant some sort of term of, of um, punishment, but taking them into the prison system, all they're doing is exposing them to people that have a, a criminal mindset who actually do find value in being around criminals as part of their um, connection and network. And we know that that's the case. My background is actually in psychiatric nursing and uh, I didn't work in the forensic side of things. I was mainly working in the um, acute admission and also in the community. And, you know, I worked with some people who you just know they're going to continue to show up in psychiatric services. And if we just translate that same sort of a, uh, approach across to the, the criminal justice system, once they're in, if they're not getting the appropriate supports and managements once they're back out of the, the system and out trying to be members of the community, they're just going to go back in. And the part of the reason for that is once they're in, they get a free meal, they get a place to sleep, and it's actually relatively sort of safe or at least safer than sleeping under the bridge. So there's, there's partly the mindset they have going into the prison system. There are those that want to be part of it because it's kind of like part of their... It's all they're known and it's, it's in to a degree they've got like a family in there and that does happen and I've seen that myself and if we don't break some of that cycle as you say you're looking at breaking cycles and, and breaking the patterns of what happens when someone comes into contact with the um, the criminal justice system if they're not getting the proper support that recognize 
the culture that's behind all of this and the connection that they need to culture and family, you know, what are we and doing? I think, I think the fact that people experiencing homelessness feel that the only place that they can go to get a safe, warm bed is jail says a lot about our society. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. That's not good enough. And that's why we talk about investing in communities rather than in jail. Yeah. At the moment, yeah. where do we send people with mental health issues? Yeah. We send them to jail. Yeah. We send poor people to jail. We send homeless people to jail. Yeah. And what are we expecting is going to change by sending them to jail? They're going to come out. They're still going to be poor. They're still going to be homeless. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. we need to invest in communities. We need to have more options for people who are experiencing poverty, who are experiencing mental health issues, who are experiencing homelessness. We need to be able to support them as a community, you know, because I think if anything, what COVID has shown us is that you can be on the other end of that receiving line in the blink of an eye. Nobody could ever have anticipated COVID and what that would look like and what it would do to, to, to industries and to families and to, to businesses, you know. Many people had to experience um, our Centrelink welfare system for the first time yeah. and they didn't like it. Yeah. And changes were made. Changes were made to speed up processes. Uh, money was increased, yep. you know. Why can't we do that all the time, you know? Exactly. exactly. Why do we need to have an absolute fundamental crisis before we take action? And I've been critical of all the systems of Australia and pretty much the global systems. We, particularly as Australia, and as much as I'm very proud to be, you know, able to be in this country, and I do understand from many conversations I have that Australia is one of the better countries to live in. I totally appreciate that. That's fantastic in the way that it happens for me. But I look around and I think Australia has a tendency to be the, um, not only the she'll be right attitude that has pervaded Australia's um, you know, perceived culture, but the idea that we wait until there's an absolute devastating crisis before we actually step outside of our comfortable little bubbles to help people. And part of the reason I wanted to start the Voice on Fire interviews was to break open that opportunity to say everybody needs a helping hand. You don't need to be in crisis to be able to reach out and provide some form of support and help to somebody in a time of need because we really don't know what's going on behind, you know, the mask that someone wears. You know, I could go out in the street and smile my face off, but what's going on for me inside? What is really going on? And we need to think about that. And as you've mentioned, if someone's having a bad day, and they don't want to get out of bed and they're feeling awful, that's, that's you know, we, we can have those sort of days. But if someone's going through that because of other f factors and circumstances that we don't know about, at what point do we step up and say, you know what, I have a responsibility to my fellow human being. When do we do that? And that's why I wanted to create these platforms and give people like yourself the chance to say, hey, we need to be heard. We need to have these conversations. There are steps we can take. There are things that we can do. And, I, again, I just want to applaud what you and Kenan are doing. What you're doing is absolutely in, incredible because you, you see not only a need within the community for your people, but in, in the face of the ridiculousness of not being funded, you're still going with your total heart and soul into this. And, you know, I, I saw within the interview on the project some of the young kids and the engagement that you had on the street that just was just, you could see the smiles on their faces. They felt connected. They felt like someone was listening. And then I heard one of them say she was scared of the police. And I thought, you know, what kind of country do we live in where people are saying they're scared of the police? 
because that happens in some of the countries over in other, you know, sort of more communist-style places where the police are not your friends. So why are we why are we perpetuating that here? You know, where's that connection that we need where we reach out and we help everybody? And I think that's something that, you know, you guys are just doing in, you know, by the bucket load. And I think, you know, hats off to you for what you do. I think it's amazing. And just to sort of come back to something that I was talking with you about earlier, are there any other things that you want to see that you would like to reach out to people and ask for us to either do in support or is there anything you could recommend that we do? And I believe you were talking about some funding that you were looking to to obtain. Yeah, so we have a GoFundMe page set up at the moment. Um, and if you go to GoFundMe and you search Deadly Connections, it'll come up. And maybe you can also include, include the link uh, in the story. But um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a, a cultural uh, community and social justice hub for justice-involved people. Um, and although we, you know, we take a focus on Aboriginal people, we actually work with anybody who's justice-involved. Um, so we need a space where we can provide you know, employment pathways that are sustainable for justice-involved people. We need to be able to provide wraparound support when they're coming out of custody. We need to be able to provide um, connection to culture, not just for justice-involved people, but for community members who also want to learn about more about Aboriginal culture um, and, and, and people who want to give back, you know. We want opportunities for the community to break down those barriers and to see that Generally, the people that are in jail, generally, and I'm not saying always, are, you know, are, are broken and they just, they just need some support to put themselves back together. You know, we've got people, when people talk about jail, they automatically think of violent, rapists, sexual predators, because that's what we're fed through the media. When, in fact, there's a lot of people sitting in jail for non-violent drug offences, yep. you know. We've got a huge proportion of our people returning to jail for justice procedure offences. That means that they may have missed a parole appointment. They may have, um, you know, used a substance uh, because they're battling with substances and they don't have the appropriate support. And they're going back to jail for these things. They haven't hurt anyone. They haven't committed another offence, but they're being sent back to jail for it. So these are the types of things that we want to be able to address through our, um, through our community hub, and that's what we're trying to raise money for at the moment. And today is the last day of, of the, um, the tax season for this year, uh, and because we're, we're a registered charity with full DGR status, all of our donations are 100% tax deductible. Oh, fantastic. All right. That, if that's not incentive enough for people to be able to help you, I don't know what is. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just astounding to me that... that what what you're talking about in terms of the types of support that your Indigenous people need, but not only that, just even the non-Indigenous people that are constantly going into prison, effectively we just need to provide them with supports that are already available. The resources are already there. We're just not distributing them properly. We're not providing the level of support to the degree that we know that it's needed. And, you know, there's, there's just, you know, if, it just astounds me that there's not enough equity in the dis distribution of those services and you know you were mentioning earlier about the the 10 point something billion being spent in new south wales just a small portion of that being one percent one percent that's what we say one percent is all we need at the moment you know just to get us started to to show that we can we can have the impact that we're saying we can have yeah but even so, a lot of money from that budget and even so even if they were to take five percent of that Look at what else could be done with it. So really, it's about we need to 
I, I received a piece of advice from a lawyer a while ago. It wasn't a lawyer that I uh, had any actions uh, or any involvement with, but he was, I was fishing around for some advice. And, and the advice he gave me was um, the squeakiest wheel gets the most oil. And that's something that's sort of been coming into my conversations quite a bit. And I've learned the value of standing up and making noise because the more we create that noise, the more it's going to start to one of a better word, irritate people. And if we've got that, it's a little bit like having a stone in your shoe. If it's there, you notice that you end up taking an action. And I think sometimes we need to be able to bring just that irritation to the people who are not really maybe getting it. Maybe they're hearing it, but they're just not listening. Maybe they just don't understand. It may be ignorance. There's got to be a reason why people are just brushing it off like it's annoying. And if that's not enough, we've got to start taking these actions. And I you know, I, I personally long for the day where we're just a, a cohesive uh, community, a co cohesive society. I long for that. I would love to be able to say that Australia is really the lucky country. I don't believe that at the moment. I've, I'm quite jaded when I think about what Australia's real reputation is. And I want to see that we, we don't have to have, and I know this is a little bit uh, utopian, but I don't want to see that we have to have the conversations around the colour of someone's skin or their cultural background or their history or any of that. To me, to me, the ideal is we shouldn't need to have that conversation. It should be that we are embracing and accepting everybody that is where we are at. And that's what we're aiming for in, in terms of the messages that I'm looking at. So just from, um, from your perspective, is there anything that, that you would like to share as we, we look at wrapping up? Yeah, I think just um, head over to our website, um, www.deadlyconnections.org.au. Mm -hmm. um, and there are many other ways that you can get involved. You know, obviously donations are fantastic, but we also understand that, you know, particularly with COVID and everything that's gone on, people might not be in a position to donate. And we, we understand that. Um, but there are other things that you can do to support us. That includes, you know, liking our pages, following our social media channels, liking our posts, sharing our posts, um, you know, volunteering if you have the time. Uh, we're we're at, always looking for volunteers across many different projects of, of interest to people. Um, and there are also other ways that you can get involved on our website. Yeah, fantastic. Now, you're located in Sydney in New South Wales. Is That's there any, any sort of future plan that you have for taking what you're doing around Australia as a national program? Yes, so we are actually at the moment we're, we're registered in New South Wales as an incorporated association, but we are transitioning over to another legal structure that will allow us to go across Australia. We, we don't want to open offices in other communities, but we want to um, help those communities do what we've done yes, and, 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 and provide the solutions to their own challenges. That's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's, I think that's a fantastic mission to have. Um, and I guess just to wrap up, what I'd like to do is just recap on the things that we've um, covered over and really it's a case of, so what is it you do? Who do you do it for? And why do you do it? So what is it we do? Uh, we, well, we, work, we work with um, Aboriginal people, communities and families, particularly those affected and impacted by the child protection and justice systems. And what were the other questions, Terry? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's what you do, who do you do it for and why do you do it? 
Yeah, so we do it We do it for our communities, but we also do it for other people who are justice involved. We, we won't turn anyone away. And why do we do it? We do it because there are no other culturally responsive services doing what we're doing. And we're doing it because of the statistics. We're doing it because we know as Aboriginal people from our communities without the statistics that, that this is a huge issue that, that our people face. And, and we're, we're trying to break free of that um, ongoing cycle of grief, loss and trauma for our people. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a powerful and really essential mission. And I just want to say I, I applaud you for what you're doing. I think, you know, just taking the initiative to step up and own the, the fact that you know, um, you know, you know more than anyone that that's what your people need. And it's it's just amazing that, you know, what you're giving is is just awesome. And I just hope that we can find a way just even through this platform to be able to encourage people that may not have been aware that once they've seen some of the uh, the links that are in the description that there's, you know, they can go to your website, they can go to the GoFundMe page, anything that they may be able to do. And hopefully it opens up more conversations that they want to have with you and find out how they can contribute more or be a part of the conversation and ideally be a little bit more of a squeaky wheel for you so that this, this doesn't yeah. fall on the... Uh, the deaf ears of the, the Scott Morrisons and the um, Christian, I think it's Christian Porter, I believe, is the, um, the Attorney General. We, we just need to keep making sure that they don't forget and, you know, that's it's really essential that we acknowledge and, you know, pay our respects because it's just essential. We, we, we can't not. So on those notes, thank you so much, Carly. I've really enjoyed this conversation for, for sharing and letting, letting everyone know exactly what Deadly Connections is, is doing in the world. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure.